Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'm continuing my verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and it is a great privilege today to be able to uh, open up our Bibles to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation and to look at one of the great texts which deals in detail for us the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that text is found in Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. That's our context for today, and I want to speak today concerning, uh, last week, last time I brought the message of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and this time I want to do a little different of a message, but still staying within the, the context, and that is, why is there a second coming? Uh, why is there a second coming? Uh, I think that would be a, a good question to ask and try to answer for us today. As we look at this wonderful text, the Word of God reads, in beginning in verse 11 of chapter 19, if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to follow along, I encourage you to do so. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, the Word of God reads, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, like I said at the beginning, we are going to ask and answer the question today, is there really a second coming? Or, as I put it earlier, why is there a second coming? I think most of us would agree there is a second coming, but to actually have it laid out like this uh, it's new for me. I've never actually laid it out like this. Uh, I could have called this uh, part two very easily because I'm in the same text, but I want to handle some things differently. So right off the bat, I want to ask, answer the question, why is there a second coming? I think there's a broad view, there's a broad answer, and then there's a narrow, more specific one to give you two answers right off the bat. Number one is, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill all of the prophecy. And we, we mentioned that last time. There are uh, 1,575 Old Testament prophecies referring to the second coming. But many, many, uh, uh, many more are in the uh, New Testament. And so I want to, uh, to address that as a, the broad view of why is there a second coming. Number one, to fulfill Scripture. But number two, the more specific reason is to set up his kingdom. Now, I realize in Christendom, not all Christians agree that there will be a kingdom. Uh, not all people who profess to be Christians. I can't say uh, uh, anything beyond that other than uh, I know that they don't. I know that there are some, some good people out there who just teach that there is no kingdom coming. Uh, that there's no rapture coming, and uh, I, to me that, that just baffles me. So I want to address this question today. Why is there a second coming? Well, to show you how important it is in the pages of Scripture, I've given you this before, 
And I just want to mention it in passing, a total of 1,575 Old Testament passages alone refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off, we see he's coming to fulfill the prophecy. I mean, what would that look like? If uh, we read all of these scriptures of verses, verses of scripture that say he's returning and he doesn't return. There are approximately 8,000 verses in the New Testament. 330 of those, or about one out of every 25 verses, directly refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he's coming to fulfill New Testament verses. In fact, next to the subject of faith, we've mentioned this. No subject is more often mentioned than the return of Christ. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So that is a pretty amazing fact. It's a pretty amazing fact to say right off the bat, why is there a second coming? To fulfill what God's word has said. And I have said for many years that I believe that when the, the Bible speaks, God speaks. So if, if I'm saying scripture says these things about his return, then I'm saying God says it. So the question is, why is there a second coming? Because God said there will be a second coming. And God is faithful and true, which we find in this very passage in Revelation chapter 19. His very coming at that very instant is a direct fulfillment of all of these verses that I have just spoken of. For example, for every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned eight times, it is a direct fulfillment of all of those times, the minute he comes back. And so we, we look at all of these verses, as we have mentioned them uh, last time, that the Lord himself refers to his coming. And I, I like this, this kind of phrase because uh, th this is, a, I'm quoting from a, a writer here, John Walford was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary where I graduated, uh, said this, The Lord himself refers to his coming 21 times and over 50 times we're exhorted to be ready for that great event. Uh, well, but when I just said that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, it's actually God who is saying it. So it's actually God himself through all of these scriptures. And I understand what he's talking about here because... Uh, the Lord himself, out of his own mouth, through his incarnation, his flesh, he says this. So clearly, because so much biblical testimony is at stake, we can be absolutely certain that it's going to happen, and that is why it's going to happen, because unmistakably, his word of God says there will be a second coming. And so I, I look at these signs of the times. I look at things around us. Um, I'm probably like most of you. I try to read. I listen to the news. I pay attention to other prophecy teachers. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's amazing to me that, that we're still here. It's amazing to me that God has not come yet. In fact, there are starting to be a lot of articles and even books that are being printed of, 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 say, prophecy writers who are getting asked the question, are we in the tribulation period? Because they can't believe that Christ hasn't come back yet. But I can assure you, we are not in the tribulation period. Uh, it just, that is, not, that is not true. We cannot be in the tribulation period because of all that we've already seen in our study of Revelation chapter uh Actually, Revelation chapter 6 through to where we are now in Revelation chapter 19. 
So, with that said, there are a lot of reasons specifically given in the Scripture as to why the second coming takes place. They don't lay it out like that, but we see it in so many other things. So the promises of God, uh, for example, uh, tells us that Christ will return, and so his word has to be proven true. Uh, the statements of Jesus that I just mentioned. But then there is also the guarantee of the Holy Spirit uh, to validate what the Holy Spirit says. And we know that the Word of God says that the Holy Spirit is God. So uh, it was the Holy Spirit who indeed inspired uh, the New Testament writers to write the promise of the return of Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit in us who is the guarantee of the down payment of that great event that is yet to come. So, I think uh, to look at the, just the validity of the of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's called the earnest of our expectation, uh, can be uh, translated, he, he is our engagement ring, the engagement ring that guarantees the wedding between the bride and the church and the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, there is the program for the church itself. God has a plan for the church. It is a plan distinct and unique for the church, just like God has a plan that is unique and distinct just for the nation of Israel. And so it is a very interesting thing to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, the fact of his coming or asking and answering the question, why is there a second coming? We realize in going through that that God really does have a plan. It is a plan that involves his return, it is a plan that involves the setting up of his glorious kingdom. And we know that uh, the promise is laid out for us, not only in the book of Acts, but it's unfolded for us even in the book of Revelation, uh, as we're going to begin to see after the return of Christ. And so God's plan for the church really demands his return. After all, he has uh, to come back and take his church to be his bride many times. Uh, I mean, to marry his church. The promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is already we've already seen this in this chapter, involves the church. He must return for that. So he comes for the rapture to take us up. Uh, then the ceremony, the, it, it's, it's just an amazing thing that God's plan for the nations even demands it uh, to prove to the nations of the world he's coming back, guess what? To judge the nations. So why is the, there a second coming? Well, you could say it quite simply, to judge the nations. Uh, Matthew 25 says that. Joel 3 says that. And so we, we look at this. Romans 11 uh, indicates part of that, that to be true too. So the plan for the church, the plan for the nations, the plan for Israel demands that Jesus return. You can look at it another way as well. The humiliation of Christ uh, demands that he will return or answers the question, why is there a second coming? The first time he came, he was scorned, he was hated, he was despised and humiliated. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that demands that he come back in the glory which is his due, with the respect and honor and worship uh, which shall be given to him. Furthermore, the exaltation of, 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 of uh, Jesus uh, demands his return. Uh, so we look at these things and we begin to realize man, there is really a lot here. In fact, if I were to lay this out just point by point by point of all the reasons Jesus came so that there could be or answer it the, so that we could answer the question, why is there a second coming? I come up with 17 reasons, and some of those overlap a little bit. 
But for today, I want to continue in this study of the Revela- of Revelation 19, verse 11, by looking at something that uh, has always been a puzzle to me. And that is, why in the world do churches advertise? Uh, and I've seen it so many times. Do they say, we're going to have a message next week, or you see it in this, their Sunday bulletin, the message, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what do they teach? They teach the rapture of the church. And I have seen that so many times that it's, 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 it's just, it's not even funny. It's like they cannot keep those two apart, uh, separate those two, but those two are totally separated. So I want to digress just a moment and just kind of talk to you about something that I think we need to keep in mind as we go through here. There is nothing in the scenario that we're, we're seeing of the description of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ that matches the descriptions of each other. Uh, There is nothing to indicate that they are one event of the same. And I know there are people that teach it, but they are not. They're totally different. There are two scriptures, basically, that we look at in the New Testament that refer to the rapture of the church. And one is found in John chapter 14. And I know that I have been given probably some of the nastiest letters ever have I received uh, by calling this a picture or a look at the rapture of the church when you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I just want to just read that section to you. I could uh, quote it, but I want to read it exactly as I see it. Uh, if you give you a chance to follow along with me, if you want to. John, chapter 14, and uh, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I remember teaching through the the Gospel of John. I loved this section. He also says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. That is what is found in John chapter 14. And then in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, it is, it is a, another picture of the, of the rapture of the church or given to us as the rapture of the church. And that is found in chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then this uh, amazing next verse that says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that is what we see basically as a picture or a look at the, the rapture of the church. Both of those describe the coming of the Lord for the church, the coming of the Lord for his beloved saints. <clears throat> now, in John 14, uh, when, I, when I, I give you that, that is, that is not to be taken as a warning. That is a promise. That was not an event to be feared. That was an event to be anticipated. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come and get you and take you to that place. And that's very important because whatever the, the, the catching away of believers is, it is something we long for, something we look for. It's something we love to anticipate. It is uh, the hope. 
because he is going to come. He's going to get us, take us to the place he has prepared for us. And you see what comfort that is when 1 Thessalonians mentions that, wherefore comfort one another with these words, that's what he's referring to. Where is Christ now? He's in heaven. What's he doing there? Well, he's preparing a place for us in his Father's house. Uh, But when he comes to judge, he comes to earth, stays on the earth, sets up his kingdom here. The rapture is a very different event. It is the catching away of the church into the heavenly homes that have been prepared for the believers, and that's why it's difficult to see those two things as the same event. So I understand why many Christians are confused about all the events surrounding the second coming or all the events looking at the rapture of the church because they get they get mashed together in many sermons. I, in fact, I just listened to another sermon this week. It said on the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I turned on it uh, and listened to it, and it was not about the second coming. It was about the rapture of the church again. So at the rapture, furthermore, Christ doesn't come to earth, which I just read to you. He meets us, his saints, in the air. Now, here in Revelation 19, he comes all the way to the earth. He doesn't come down to meet his saints. He brings us with him, and they follow him as they come. In the rapture, he comes and meets his saints in the air and takes them to heaven. In the second coming, he comes all the way to earth with his saints, and he establishes his kingdom on the earth and stays here for a duration of 1,000 years, the full length of time of the kingdom. So those two cannot be meshed together as one event. At least not. I don't think they can. And so uh, many I know do that, but I don't think they have good proof or validation to, to even show how they could be. But at the rapture, there is no judgment. There's nothing in the text of John 14 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to speak of judgment. But here in Revelation 19, it's all judgment. Beginning in Revelation chapter 6, it is judgment, judgment, judgment. You have you have the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and then the bowls of wrath. All of that is judgment. And even as it is coming, it is a judgment. The rapture is a time of blessing. And this, according to the scriptures, is a time of cursing, the second coming. There will be blessing for the ungodly when he comes on the earth at the second coming, but the emphasis is on the judgment, and no such emphasis is made with regard to the rapture. You just don't see it. At the rapture, as I said, he meets his own in the air at the second coming, here in Revelation 19 and and other uh, familiar or other uh, parallel passages in the Old Testament. He sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14. He puts his feet right on the Mount of Olives, splits the Mount of Olives, creates a valley in which he judges the world and establishes his kingdom. So you can see they're they're different. And you might say, well, okay, I get it, I get it. But so many don't get it. And you would not believe the questions I have asked about the timing or the reason or the place or the meshing together of this. People will ask a question about the second coming, and they're really asking a question about the rapture. And so you have to take the time to explain it to them. The event of the second coming of Jesus Christ is preceded by blackness, the darkened sun, the darkened moon, the stars are falling, smoke fills the universe, lightning and the, the blinding glory introduce the second coming of Jesus Christ.
But these aspects are not what you see in the coming of the saints. In fact, you see nothing in, in John 14 and nothing in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's why we believe that the coming for the church, which we call the rapture or the catching away, is a different event entirely from the second coming that precedes the coming of Christ in judgment to set up his kingdom. And so it is, a, I think, a very important thing to look at. This is why, and we, uh, well, now let me give you this. Um, when we talk about the, the second coming or we talk about the rapture, we use the term always in relation to the rapture. Is the rapture before the tribulation or is the rapture midway through the tribulation or is the rapture after the tribulation? And we post that as views uh, and we would be called, or what I would say, what my, our church was, is a pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation period. And when you look at the second coming, there is another phrase in relation to that. You say, is the second coming uh, before the kingdom? Is the second coming during the kingdom? Is the second coming after the kingdom? And for that designation, we use the word millennial. So you say premillennial. Uh, amillennial, like that. So you're talking, is the second coming before it? That's called premillennial. So my view in teaching this book of Revelation is the pre-tribulation, premillennial view. And it makes a lot of sense if you already understand these terms, but I've had people just throw their hands up and say, all right, there you go. I don't understand all of that. But it's real simple. It's just giving you the time and uh, a, a, a placement of where the rapture actually falls and where the second coming falls. So, with that in mind, we can see that there is a big difference between the two events. And there's no need to confuse the events. When we're here in Revelation chapter 19, we're looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so, why is there a second coming? To reveal Jesus Christ to the world. To set up his kingdom and to bring us back, to settle into the kingdom. Now, looking at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, uh, I know that uh, this was uh, going almost uh, like around the world to get to this, but we see here that Jesus is coming in judgment. He's coming as a conqueror, and we mentioned already in verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Really, there couldn't be a more appropriate name for the Lord Jesus Christ than faithful and true. You remember, he's called back in chapter 3, verse 14, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So here, for the second time, Jesus is identified as faithful and true. He is faithful to his promises. Think about that. That's what it says in describing Revelation uh, chapter 19 when it talks about him and coming back in, in beginning in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. He is faithful and true to the very promise that heaven would open and he would return. He is faithful to whatever he promises, and he speaks only the truth, faithful and true to his return. In the third chapter of Revelation, in the seventh verse, he is described as he who is holy, he who is true. Why is he called faithful and true? Because he's keeping his word, right? He's keeping it. He promised he would come. He keep it. He's going to keep it. He promised he would come, and he comes. He is faithful to keep his word. He is faithful and true personified. 
Now, think about other verses that Christ has said. What about this verse? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, can he be faithful and true to a passage that says he will come again and not be faithful and true to the verse that says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Absolutely not. He cannot. God cannot lie. Jesus always tells the truth tells the truth because he is the God who cannot lie. I, the Lord, do not lie. He is always the faithful and true one. He will always keep his word. He promised he would come. He promised all the promises in the scripture. You can take them and know for certain they are absolute truth. You remember now the dragon that we saw in Revelation chapter 13? He's a, he's a deceiver. The beast that we saw is a false Christ. The second beast is a fake prophet, a false prophet. The world is filled at that time with false worshipers. But Jesus Christ is going to break through that, and he is called faithful and true. And because he's faithful and true, it says in verse 11, in righteousness he judges and wages war. See that in Revelation 19, verse 11? He who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and then in righteousness he judges and wages war. Uh, he is faithful and true to his word. He acts in righteousness. He has to do what is right. He has to have a holy, righteous reaction against sin. And so he does. Faithful to his righteous character. Only he can come as the Savior. Only he can come as the judge. Only he can come as the righteous and true one. And only he can have acts that are righteous as he does them. And so... This, this is a, an amazing thing to look at when you look at Christ. He's coming back. Uh, is it, why is there a second coming? He's coming back to judge. He's coming in fury to judge the world. And then the most amazing statement, to wage war, to make war. He comes as a warrior king. He comes to fight. And I, I'm beginning to hear more and more Christians say, well, he can't. that can't be talking about the same God of love that I know as a God of love. Well, But it is. To make war, he comes as a warrior. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, amazing, astoundingly, it's recorded that he said to the church at Pergamos, I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He is a warrior against the ungodly. And by the way, that mention of him making war in chapter 2, verse 16, is the only other mention of him making war in all the scripture. Uh and then it will be too late for the rejectors. They will be obviously have been hardened beyond the point where they could re respond positive, positively. And so that's the way they will see it. So it's, it's an incredible phrase. And I know that a lot of people just hate that phrase. But it, when, when you go to uh, Ezekiel, I mean Exodus chapter 15 verse 3, it says the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. It is an amazing title for God, an amazing title for the Son of God. But whether you like it or not, it is a true one. It is a true title. The Lord is a man of war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. What does that mean if you want to apply a different meaning to that? Frankly, the judging has already been going on in the in the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and the pouring of the bowls. Just think, now by the time the, the, the heaven opens and, and, and Christ is returning, uh, the world will have already seen all of this judgment that has been taking place. They've been living in it. 
And we, we, I guess we would need to understand that heaven cannot be at peace with sin. God is of pure eyes and to behold evil. Habakkuk tells us that, does it not? Cannot look upon iniquity. God's patience has an end. He will not always tolerate iniquity. Justice cannot always live with injustice. Truth cannot always live with lies. Rebellion cannot always go on. It is going to end. Look at verse 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He has eyes like a flame of fire. What is that? Well, nothing is, is I think I like the way John Walford puts it, nothing escapes his notice. Uh, we, we can look at that as penetrating eyes. And what are the true meanings of all of this? You know, I don't know that we're ever going to really know what all of this is. Uh, but this is what we, we, we see, and pretty much probably uh, these are right, at least in part. His eyes pierce through, and he sees everything uh, that is open and laid bare for him. His eyes were a flame of fire. Revelation one fourteen. it says it again, has to do with the piercing, penetrating, as well as the purifying gaze. Uh, he can see into the recesses of every human heart, as uh, Hebrews 4.20 says, and, and implies that the Word of God can do that. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 18 of Revelation, to the church of Thyatira, it says, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, when first he looked upon the earth, when first he came, his eyes sparkled with the tenderness and joy as he gathered little children to himself as he expressed uh, his love to the poor and the needy. Uh, we see pictures of this all the way through. The day is coming when those eyes flash with fire. They are penetrating, burning eyes, probing the darkest recesses of the human heart and purging and purifying with judgment to judge rightly. He has to see everything. He has to sound the depths of every heart, as one writer puts it. He has to see behind every mask. Uh, John MacArthur says this. He has to see behind every mask, under every facade. It is the flaming vision of righteous omniscience and anger. Boy, that is so, so true. And then it says in verse 12, Upon his head are many crowns, many diadems, many crowns, rulers, or crowns, and this speaks of his royal rank, his royal authority. And it's the idea that he's just collected all of the crowns. They're all on his head because nobody else rules anywhere. Uh, he is the ultimate symbol of sovereignty. All the crowns on his head represent that. You'll remember, won't you, I think in, in Revelation chapter 12, looking at the description of Satan, and we can see he's ruling monarch there. In verse 3, the great red dragon had seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. You remember that? And then over in chapter 13, we saw the Antichrist pretty much described the same way. Satan will yield his crown, and the Antichrist will yield his crowns, and the rulers of the world will yield their crowns, and all the crowns will be on the head of Jesus because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And by the way, that is absolutely a true statement. And so we can see that this passage is very much God-centered, very much Christ-centered, very much revealing of Jesus Christ. Why is there a second coming? To reveal Jesus Christ. This is the revelation, revealing him to the world. Just like the world will see him at that moment. We're not talking about him appearing to believers at that moment. He's already with us. 
This will be appearing to the lost and the wicked of the world. They are going to, in the midst of that darkness that is of judgment in itself in Revelation 16, they are going to look up to the very glory of God penetrating the heavens, and they're going to look right into the face of Jesus. That is an amazing, amazing thing. And it says uh, about him, he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. We're going to get into the, the rest of these verses next time. But for now, I thank you so much for joining me. I apologize for having to miss two weeks. Uh, but uh, I, I will be hopefully be pursuing this forward. And we have so much to cover. I'm still looking for getting into the kingdom, teaching that. Stay with me. and Thank you for joining us today.